So please open God's word with me to Mark 6. Mark 6, beginning in verse 45 down to 52. That's what I'll be reading. And listen as God speaks to us here. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but they saw him walking on the sea. They thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, it says, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Dull, insensitive, lacking understanding due to their circumstance, due to their weak faith. Saints, I hope you see when we read this, the the glorious revelation of Jesus in this text. And I pray that you also see that this text is highly applicable to us today. And here's why. What's going on here is these men in this experience, these 12 men, these disciples who would be apostles... These 12 men in that storm-tossed boat, this is part, what's going on here in this experience, this is part of their training and their preparation for their apostolic ministry to come and their mission. And on this sea, what happens is these men will be taught lessons here. They're taught a fantastic lesson about rowing against the wind, and that lesson will change them. And that lesson will stay with them for the rest of their lives Because of what happens there on the sea, the miracle that takes place there of Jesus coming to them, walking on the water. So the events that took place here are spectacular. They're important. They're critical to our own understanding of what God's going to do in our lives through the ministry of the apostles and through the ministry of his spirit today. The events that took place then, though, at that evening, they happened for their good and God's glory And they also happen for our good in God's glory. And here's why. These these events, I'll give you an outline. These events teach us about, number one, our good shepherd's interceding protection in verses 45 to 46. These events teach us about our sovereign God's intervening compassion in verses 47 to 50a. And these events teach us about our merciful Savior's comforting revelation in verses 50b to 52. And I want us just to jump on in here by looking at verses 45 to 46 this morning. Once again, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Here's what Mark's doing here. Mark's going to teach us something critical here, something very important to them and to us as well. 
Mark begins here to teach us about, number one, our good shepherd's interceding protection through his personal instructions that take place here and his personal actions that we see unfold. And here's what we find when we we look at this text. We find Jesus mercifully unfolding his good and his gracious plan of protection through his interceding commands and his communion with the Father up on the mountain. But before we can really get into that anymore, we have to actually back up a little bit. Before we can understand verse 45, we need to remember the context from which it flows. And we must remember the event that just took place previous to this on the very same day in chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. On that same day, when Jesus multiplied the five loaves and the two fish to feed thousands, they then went from that to this immediate moment when they get into the boat and go to the other side of the lake. But let's look first at verses 40 to 44 before we go into verse 45 any longer. In verse 40, the end of this miraculous event that took place here, it says that they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the event that took place preceding this moment in time that we see in our text today. Verse 45, it says, immediately after that, immediately after that, he made, that's the emphasis here, he made his disciples get into the boat. They didn't want to go. Would you? I mean, look, you just saw this fantastic miracle. But more than that, there was something going on in this circumstance that they needed to get away from. And Jesus knew it. He was interceding for them. He made them get into the boat. And go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, when you read a text like that, you shouldn't just gloss over it. You should ask questions about it. One important question is why? Why Why the immediacy here, Jesus? Why did you have to make the men get into the boat? What's going on here? What's the rush all about in this moment in time? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. Isn't that sort of you know, disheartening. I mean, we, we don't know. It's disappointing. Mark doesn't tell us in this account, but John does in John 6. At the end of this account in John 6, John sheds light on what was taking place that actually moved Jesus to immediate intercession for his disciples here. In John 6, John tells us what took place immediately after this great miracle. He says, after this miracle... The multitude was about to come and take him by force to make him king. So he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we have to understand that to understand the setting of Mark. You have to understand the setting and you have to understand what's coming. There's a coming crisis that Jesus already omnisciently knows about. And it's, it's causing him to then act on their behalf, intercede on behalf of his disciples. And it caused him to act like the good shepherd that he is. And he intercedes for them immediately. And he sends them away. And he does so for their protection. He sends them away for their protection. And here's why. He knew that after this miracle, this was on the hearts and the minds of the, the crowd. They wanted to force him to be their king. 
He understood this frenzied mindset that was there among them, this rebellious mindset even through this crowd that was flowing over and affecting possibly even them if they stayed. He knew this crowd was filled with misguided messianic expectations, and they were also filled with a rebellious spirit against Rome and Herod. And what they wanted was, is what John makes clear, they wanted a militant Messiah that would topple Herod and call for a political revolution against Rome. And they had taken upon themselves to decide, it's Jesus who's going to do this, and we're going to make him. That wasn't his mission, though. Jesus knew that. He wanted his disciples to know that. This wasn't his mission. His mission wasn't to be a militant Messiah. Not at all. What was his mission? Well, he came to be the suffering Savior. The one who would give his life a ransom for many and reconcile them to God. So that that ultimately is why he immediately sends his disciples away from this frenzied and rebellious crowd. He does this in his holy protective wisdom. He knew if he left them there, they're going to be influenced or even corrupted or caught up in the crowd's misguided and selfish thinking. And so he intercedes for them. He interceded and sent them away to protect them. And he should have done that. That was the right thing to do. And he, in his perfect wisdom, knew that. He knew that they were like us. And that this kind of heightened frenzy, messianic expectation, and the hope of him becoming king would be a temptation for them. They're like, yes, Jesus, we want you to be king too because we are your inside guys. We'll be on your right and your left. We'll be in authority. So Jesus sends them away to protect them from the crowd and protect them from themselves. Their own temptations. And obviously they still had many misunderstandings theologically. So he's protecting them from getting getting caught up in this frenzy. And so he commands them. By the way, it is a command. It's an imperative there. He made them get into the boat and go to the other side. Then what we see next, I think, is just, it's almost like a side comment when you read verse 45. But it's not. It's very important. I think it's significant. Verse 45 goes on to say, after they got, he made them get into the boat, Jesus then dismissed the crowd. There's no, there's no uprising. There's no chaos. There's no rebellion against Jesus. No, because he is speaking in the divine authority of God and he dismisses these people for they had the wrong expectations. They had the wrong desires. And I hope you realize, just humanly speaking, trying to dismiss a crowd of five to ten plus thousand people is actually impossible. You couldn't do it. You guys go home. And we can't do it here on Wednesday night or Sunday afternoon. I mean, you guys are here all day, right? Go home. But Jesus did it. He did it. And it is amazing to me to see that in that one little passage. I mean, when he did that, you know what he's doing? He's revealing himself to them in some way that they didn't even perceive. He's revealing his divine authority. He truly was king, But not the king they wanted. He was the king who would give himself as a ransom for many and reconcile us to God. That was his mission. And after dismissing them, then verse 46 tells us that he went up on the mountain to pray. We don't know exactly what he prayed here. There's a lot of things we could speculate about from other passages that we read about him going to pray. But we do know this. He was praying in communion with his father. He was fellowshipping with his father. He was he was, if you will, affirming the Father's will for his ministry and mission here on earth. But I think he was doing more than that. I think he was interceding. But that's what he does for eternity for all his people. 
I think he was interceding for those men who would be in that boat, sent out by him intentionally into a storm, interceding for their faith to not grow weak. That's what I think he was doing. That takes us to verses 47 to 50. And here Mark will teach us about the sovereign God's intervening compassion for us, for people like us, like the disciples. God's sovereign intervening compassion for the weary and the weak of heart. In 47 to 50, I think it's important to understand what we're saying here is Jesus' compassion comes to the weak and the weary. But notice it comes in his timing. It comes at the appointed time, and it comes with an intended purpose. It comes to strengthen his weary and his weak disciples. But before it comes, he'll first use that sea that they're cast out into to test them and sanctify their hearts. He'll sanctify them. And it's amazing to me as you think about what's going on here. The sea becomes something that, is, if you will, is twofold. The sea would become both a testing ground for the disciples and a platform on which Jesus would stand and display his mercy to the weary and the weak in a most glorious way. Look at verses 47 to 58. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Mark's just making a really clear distinction for us. While on the land, notice this, it's night, it's dark, there's a storm brewing. He saw that they were making headway painfully. Now, how is that possible? Oh, did he just have a really good view from the mountain? Not at all. This is the omniscient God in the flesh that we're speaking about. And his heart went out to those who he loved and that were in pain. It makes me think about in Acts, the only place I know this is recorded in the New Testament, where Jesus gets up off the throne out of compassion for one of his own. In Mark or in Acts, Stephen delivers one of the greatest sermons you've ever heard out of the Old Testament. At the end of it, the religious leaders of the time rise up to stone him and kill him. And as he's being stoned, Jesus, it says, stands. And he sees Jesus standing because Jesus is compassionate for those he loves, those who are suffering. So verse 48 says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. He, he meant to pass by them, but they saw him walking on the sea. They thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, it says. For they all saw him and were terrified. They were terrified. Shaken to the core. More terrified of the sight of him than they were of the storm. So what we see going on here is really important to us. We see this platform on which Jesus is going to display his compassion to the weak and the weary. But he first sends them out into that platform to suffer, if you will, to see how weak they really are and what they would do in that environment. Were they looking for him? Did they expect him to come? It doesn't appear so when you read the text. They were painfully rowing in all their might and all their strength. 
And what I find interesting between verses 47 and 50 and then the previous verse 45 is this, that it it appears that in 45, Jesus is sending them away to protect them from the immediate crisis that's there on the shore. And he does so only to send them out into another crisis on the sea. But keep in mind, all that's taking place here is an act of sovereign intervention and compassion, even though it may not appear to be so. When we first see it, the storm was not the same kind of storm that we saw back in Mark four. That was a life threatening storm. This is not a life threatening storm. This is a frustrating storm. This is a, a, a storm that just delays you. It, it makes you frustrated and it makes you a little angry. It makes you want to say, why am I out here? Why didn't he just leave me on the shore? So it's a storm that was hard to deal with. It was difficult. It was difficult. Physically, it was difficult. Mentally, they wanted to get to the other side. It should have only taken them about an hour. They're out there for six plus hours, painfully rowing. And it seems like they're, they're, they're at a point where they're just at a standstill. They're, they're rowing and they're rowing and they're rowing. They're giving it all their might. Peter's screaming and the, the, the wind saying, grow. You know, he's, he's forcing them to keep on. But they're rowing against headwinds from evening Until early morning. Verse 48 says that Jesus knew it. He saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Saints, this is where it becomes marvelous for us. Applicable for us. Wondrously there in Mark 6.48, he starts off by telling us that Jesus saw them in their distress. He saw them from the land itself. Maybe he was praying. He was still in prayer, communion with the Father, interceding on their behalf. And he omnisciently sees it's time to act. And he's going to intervene on their behalf. And so he does so in 48b. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. In verse 48... We see Jesus coming to them in the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between possibly 3 and 6 a.m. And what we truly do see in that and through that is this. We're seeing Jesus express his sovereign and multifaceted grace and compassion toward these suffering saints. And he came, though, at his appointed time to his appointed storm to teach them something That is most important, not only to them, but to us as well. He was teaching them, training them, preparing them to trust in him, even in the dark and the stormy night of the soul. Even if you can't see him, even if you don't feel his presence and the winds are against you, he is there watching you, waiting to come to you. He cares for you. He's going to intervene for his saints. He does so in multifaceted ways. Sometimes it's the fourth watch. Sometimes it's the first. Sometimes he comes in ways we don't expect. Sometimes he comes in ways we don't necessarily like. But he comes. And he sanctifies our minds and our hearts when he comes. That's the point of the storms in the Christian's life. I think you'll see that as we go further in the text. In 48C, we go from 
his desire to come to them. He saw them. He's coming to them to 48 C when it says he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the water, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. They shrieked. It's similar to what the demoniac did in the presence of Jesus. They screamed. They screamed for multiple reasons. They didn't expect him, first of all. They didn't recognize him, second of all. And third of all, they were still superstitious in their minds, influenced by their culture, their world. They thought he was a sea demon. They thought he was a spirit of some sort, an omen coming to say that you're going to be destroyed in this storm. They thought that. They cried out and thought he was a ghost because they were still weak in their faith. And in their understanding, their minds and their hearts still needed to be sanctified. How many times does Jesus come to you and and you don't expect him to come the way he came and you think that can't be God and you push back, but he keeps coming. Your heart still needs to be sanctified. You need to get your eyes fixed on who he is and what he's done. You only do that through the gospel that we have here before us. Now. When you read the first part of 48C, I admit, for most people, including myself, many, many years ago, I remember reading this going, what in the world? You just said you saw him and you're going to come to him, and all of a sudden you say, he means to pass by them? He meant to pass by? Wait, I thought he was coming to help them. He meant to pass by them. That's the way we read that often. That's not what it means. Not at all. He meant to pass by them, but they saw him walking on the water and thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. I mean, when you read that, you have to be thinking to yourself, what in the world does that mean, Mark? That little phrase is very off-center in my mind when I read it in light of what we see going on at the beginning of verse 48. He meant to pass by? It kind of sounds confusing at first glance. In 48, he begins by telling us that Jesus saw their distress in this storm on the sea, and he came to them. And that being the case, then we have to interpret the latter half of verse 48 in light of the first half. So obviously the end of verse 48 isn't telling us something different than the beginning is. It's not saying, oh, he started toward them, but then he changed his mind. They didn't quite perform the way he wanted, so he turned to the side. That's what he meant to do, but they caught him at a glance. No. It didn't mean that he was trying to sneak by them to go to the other side of the shore to show them he is already there waiting. That's not what it means. No, here's what it means. And we'll get into it more deeply in a second. When it says he meant to pass by them, what it's saying to us is he meant to come off the shore to intercede and intervene and help them. And he does it here in a most spectacular and compassionate way. And you understand the text in light of the bigger context of the Old Testament. What you need to know when you, when you see this phrase at the beginning here, or the middle here of uh, verse 48, he meant to pass by them. Here's what you need to know. You need to know that that phrase, that phrase comes directly from the Old Testament. And it's meant to point us back there to see the revelation of God's compassion in the accounts that speak of him passing by men. Who are weary and needy. So what you understand when you read it that way is this. This this phrase he uses here is packed with the sovereign compassion of God. And here's why. Because in the Old Testament, that's how it's used. It's used in the Old Testament by God in the revelation of himself to the weary saints. 
It's used here in the same way. It's used here to reveal the sovereign compassion of Jesus, who is the God-man, God in human flesh. And Mark's using this phrase to declare something spectacular. He's using this phrase to declare that, that the miracle of Jesus walking on the sea is, is in reality a revelation of the transcendent Lord of glory who will pass by his disciples. He'll pass by just like God passed by a man named Moses. Just like he passed by Moses in Exodus. Exodus 33. You can turn there if you want to with me. Exodus 33, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Here's what Mark is pointing us toward here. He's pointing us back to this revelation of God's compassion as he passes by Moses in the cleft of the rock. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now, keep in mind the context. Moses is put out with Israel. He's having to struggle with this, this wandering tribe of rebels. And he's, he's, he's needing rest. He's needing some kind of help. And so he says to God, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory, notice, passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is what Mark, Jesus' use of this phrase, is intended to point us back to. It's really clear what's going on here. We have God intervening on behalf of these weak and weary men. It's God who's coming to them on the water. It's God who is showing mercy toward them, compassion. I hope you're starting to see what it means when you read the phrase, he meant to pass by them. Listen, by Jesus coming to them in this way, this this supernatural way, walking on the water. You know what he's doing? He's doing what only God can do, right? Only the creator of the sea can walk on it. That's what Job tells us as he describes God in Job 9a. He says, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? That's God. Who's Jesus? God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Job 9.11 goes on to say, Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. That's the passing by that Jesus was referring to when he said this. So here's what we can see now happening in Mark 6. The very same God that passed by Moses and Job is now passing by the disciples in their distress. And why is he passing by? He's passing by to sovereignly reveal his compassion to them personally. And how does he do that? By fully revealing himself to them. That is the most compassionate act of God there can ever be to weak and weary sinners. He reveals himself. And listen, what's amazing to me is he does it in a way that's greater than when the Lord passed by Moses and Job. Moses couldn't see God's 
face. He could only see his back as he passed by. Job couldn't perceive the Lord passing by, but vaguely. But Job says it this way. I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. But in Mark 6, when Jesus passes by the disciples, he does so to make himself fully known. And he does that so that his disciples and us today will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he said he meant to pass by them. I'm going to show you who I am. Up to this point, that hasn't happened. He expected it to. He expected them to figure it out, but they're dull of hearing. Their hearts are calloused by their circumstance, by their culture. Their flesh is not fully sanctified. They hadn't figured it out. He keeps doing things in front of them to make them aware So he says, finally, here's how I'm going to show you the greatest compassion in your time of need. I'm going to tell you who I am. And that's exactly what he does. He passes by them, revealing his glory to them and his compassion to them. He's revealing his glory and compassion, though, as God in the flesh. He's making himself fully known. And he does it to strengthen their weak faith. And he does it to comfort their weary hearts. Look at the disciples' reaction to this event in verses 49 to 50. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw and were terrified. Listen, at the sight, at the sight of Jesus walking on the sea without identifying himself, they were filled with absolute terror. These are, these are well, well, if you will, seasoned sailors. Knowing the Sea of Galilee well, but now they're in terror at the sight of the one who's walking on the water. And they're in terror until, notice what it says, until, until he immediately spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. They're in terror until he compassionately speaks and reveals himself to them. That takes us to our third point. In verses 50 to 52, here Mark reveals, thirdly, our Savior's merciful revelation. Look at it says in 50, the latter half to 52. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, in the midst of this Storm, And in the midst of this sight, you know these men, it tells us, are in terror. And when he gets into the boat with them, speaks to them, gets into the boat with them, this would be a comforting revelation to them. They weren't really, like I said, afraid of the raging storm. They're not not afraid of what's raging out on the sea. They're afraid, they're in terror of what they see. Namely, Jesus in his glory. That's why Jesus immediately then reveals his full identity to them in words. In verse 50b, immediately he spoke and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now listen, saints, these words, these these words not only let the disciples know that it was truly Jesus, but beyond that, these words reveal to them his full identity as God the Son. That's what the disciples needed to hear. That's what comforted their hearts. That's what brought on astonishment. 
And that's what the disciples recognize and declare at the end of Matthew's account of this very same narrative. At the end of Matthew 14, they say, truly, you are the son of God. And they declare that because, listen to this, this is important. When Jesus says, it is I, he says, ego, Amy. He is making himself fully known. He says, it is I, I am that you are seeing. he's, He's revealing himself in his fullness to them. He's making himself fully known to comfort them, just just like God did in the case of Moses in Exodus 3.14. He says, I am who I am. Tell the children of Israel that I am has sent you. That's what Jesus is saying here. Just, Just look at the compassion of our Christ, our Savior, our Lord and our God in this. In the midst of this terrorist, terrifying moment, as they see this this image out on the sea. Jesus says, let me tell you who I am. I am the great I am. He mercifully reveals his identity to them. Verse 51, I think, implies that then after he spoke the great words of who he is, the I am God, he immediately gets into the boat with him. Isn't that fantastic? I think he immediately did that. I think he said it. They were amazed. He steps in the boat and everything got silent. Even the winds and the storm quit raging. That's what happens. The winds ceased. Saints, this must have been a most comforting joy to these weary, weak, and frightened men. I mean, he makes it clear that it was something astounding to them there in verse 40, 51. His, his revelation and his words and his very actions themselves utterly astounded them. Sure it did. God got in the boat with them. Wouldn't that astound you? God's with you now. Does that astound you? Jesus came to reveal himself to us. And that was the most comforting thing that he could grant those men in the midst of that storm. It's the most comforting thing he can grant us in the midst of every storm. When he did this, he revealed something very important to them. It wasn't just Jesus, the prophet, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the good man that came to them. No, it was the one who saw them omnisciently from the shore. He's he's revealing himself in this way to, to comfort them. They need to understand something in this. They were never out of his sovereign and compassionate sight. And saints, neither are we. Though he reigns in glory and he reigns in our hearts, he sees us and cares when we are suffering. Just like he cared for them. He hasn't changed. He sees our pain in the darkness. He sees our weariness in the strong headwinds that we face. He sees our weakness in the midst of the raging storms. And look, like them, we may not see him. But he is always watching us. His compassionate eye is fixed on us, just like it was fixed on these disciples when he comes to them in their time of need to bring them aid and bring them what they needed most, which was a full revelation of himself in the darkness of a storm. Church, Jesus still does that today. He still comes to his people to reveal himself when we are weary and we are weak. He does so through his word. He comes to us through the revelation here of Mark 6. And he does it to comfort us. He does it to remind us, take heart, do not be afraid. I am is in the storm with you. 
Just remember, saints, his care for them is no different than it is for us. His sovereign care, his omniscience, his protection, all those things, his intervention, he still expresses those to us. It's no different now than it was then. He always lives to make intercession for us. And we can trust him then that whatever storms we face, we know he has sent them our way to strengthen our weak faith so that we would trust in him more and rest in his comforts and his promises as our sovereign savior. And let me ask you some questions to bring this home to us today. I hope that these aren't just pointed questions. I hope these are helpful questions. I'm not sure that I can actually get through them. I had to write them down, and when I did, it was like I shouldn't have wrote those down because it's going to be hard for me to even say it. But let me just ask you these if I can. Do you ever feel like you're facing strong headwinds or a dark night of the soul like the disciples did? Do you ever feel like you're just constantly rowing against these winds? You're going against the winds of spiritual dryness? Do you feel like a strong headwind is pushing against you in everything you do, in your pursuit of being a godly parent, in your pursuit of being a gracious spouse, in your pursuit of being a faithful employee, in your pursuit of being a faithful witness for Christ? Do those winds make you tired? They may make you feel like that you're, you're never going to get there? Are you tired of facing the dark winds of a child that's wandered from God? Are you worn out by the daily storms of constant pain and illness? You feel like you're not making any spiritual progress in all these storms that you face. And then listen, I know what that's like. I know these storms can feel like one long and endless dark night. And these storms can even make you start to wonder things you shouldn't. They can cause you to wonder if God is even aware of my sorrows. My storms. Is God aware? If he is, why doesn't he care? Why doesn't he act? Since he has acted. And we see it here in Mark 6. And listen, if you, if you feel like any of these things are true of you today, as you row against these stormy winds that blow against you, here's a question. I find this question helpful for me. I've been asking myself, learning to ask myself this more often. Are you more aware of God's absence in the storm than you are of his promised nearness and compassion in Christ? Are you more aware of God's absence in the storm than you are the promised nearness and compassion of Jesus? Are you truly looking for the one that Mark tells us is full of sovereign compassion and acts on behalf of his children? Are you looking to him? Are you looking to Christ in the storm? Are you expecting him? Saints, that's the part that really came home to me. I'm looking for him, but I don't know if my faith is strong. It feels weak. I'm not sure he's going to come. But he's promised. And he delivers on all his promises. Peter tells us he cares for us. All of our anxieties can be cast on him. Mark, I think, in this narrative, wants us to know these things. I think Mark is making it clear that Jesus is not only aware of our weariness, he cares about us in it. And he acts. He cared about the disciples, and he acted. They understood at this point 
that they were never out of his sovereign and compassionate sight. He cared for them. He came to them. He comforted them. And he did all that, though. And this is the part we don't always like. He did all that at the appointed time. And he did all that for their good and his glory. And so it is with us. Since he, he may not come at the time that you want. He may wait till the fourth watch of the night. And in so doing, give us enough time to row until we have to confess our weaknesses. And we have to look to him in faith for strength. So if you find yourself rowing today against the headwinds, against the storm, but making little progress, if you're, if you're weary from these headwinds, if, if you're wondering, is he even there, does he even care? If you're wondering if he'll ever come and help, then look to Jesus in Mark's revelation here. Because he does, and he will, and he can. Keep on rowing, but row in faith. Because today, saints, Randy, today might be the fourth watch of your dark night. It might be the day that he comes to strengthen the weary and the weak. That's how you should row. Don't row like the disciples. Too often we row like the disciples because we are too much like the disciples and not enough like Jesus. These disciples, it tells us here at the end of 52, they rode with dull, calloused hearts. Hard hearts, it says. He's not talking about the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees, those who tried to kill him and would eventually murder him. He's talking about those who, through their personal circumstances and fears and weak understanding, were dull. They were thick-headed. Saints, that's me. Listen, I can tell you a lot about the the sovereignty of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, all these attributes of God. But at times, do I live like I believe them? Not always. Because my heart's still dull. Their hearts were dull because they didn't learn the lesson Jesus taught them in the feeding of the 5,000. That's what Mark tells us there. Verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened because they didn't understand the lesson he presented to them. After that lesson, they should have trusted Jesus explicitly for everything in every situation to provide for them the resources they needed, even if they were exhausted. That's what they learned there. He tells them, you feed them. And you're like, we got nothing, Jesus. And he says, "Okay, let me take over. Right. So he does it for them. He says, yeah, the point is, you can't do this. Only I can do this. And he could only do this because he was God in the flesh. Who did this miracle? Jesus expected them then to trust in him at this moment. He expected them to understand who he was through the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. But they didn't grasp it. They didn't grasp what he was revealing about himself in that very miracle. Spectacular miracle. They should have seen in that miracle the good shepherd providing for the lost sheep of Israel in the wilderness. That's what they should have seen that day. Fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about the one who would come, the one who would be God himself, the redeemer, the provider, God himself in human flesh, manifesting his power and glory and mercy there in this miracle. But they didn't see it because their hearts were dull. They let the cares of the world, they let their own concerns, they let their own circumstances blind them to the very revelation that was going to initially be a comfort to them if they had learned it. That revelation would have helped them on that stormy sea that night. 
And I pray Mark 6 will help you as you think about that. I pray to help you trust in Jesus today in the storms that you have to face. Because I hope that you see in this that he's telling us that Jesus sees our needs. He comes in our time of need at the appointed hour and he'll give us what we need most, which is a full revelation of himself, his power and his compassion that he provided for us through the incarnation. Saints, that means that in the midst of the storm, you and I can trust in him. We can trust in him because he's proven himself to be trustworthy as our good shepherd, our sovereign God and our comforting savior in the midst of every storm we will ever face. He'll even come to us like he did the disciples when we're still dull of hearts. Think about this. He came to these. I mean, I was done with these guys a long time ago. Like if I'm, I'm reading this narrative, I'm like, get you another 12. They're just, I mean, move on, you know, but not Jesus. He still shows great mercy and compassion, tenderness toward them in spite of all their dullness. In spite of all their dullness, Jesus comes to them to reveal himself to them in order to strengthen them and comfort them. That's amazing. Behold the compassion of our God. He cares about us even when we're dull of heart. And saints, that's the reason that you and I have hope today. Because sometimes we're just dull of heart, right? This is why we have hope to continue rowing on in the storms of life and do so with hope, with assurance that Jesus will care for us. He'll provide for us what we need, which is a revelation of himself. Jesus, Jesus has done that for us in ways that far exceed what happened here, even with the disciples. He has given us a full revelation of his sovereign mercy and power. And he did so most clearly at the cross of Calvary and in his glorious resurrection. Church, we have a most compelling reason to row on in every storm. Our merciful Savior and resurrected Lord promised us this. We can row on with assurance of his presence because he says he would be with us even to the end of the age. That means including the storms that you go through. And the reasons he'll be with us even in the storm to the end of the age is this. He'll be with us in the storms because he faced the greatest storm of all. And he faced it to mercifully make us his own. He endured the storm of God's righteous wrath against our sins. He endured that storm as our substitute even. But unlike the disciples in the boat, his father wouldn't come to rescue him in the midst of that storm. He didn't come to rescue him because Jesus was willingly enduring that storm for us to purchase us with his blood. Saints, that's what assures us that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, even when we are weak in faith, even when we go through these trials and tribulations and the storms of life. Jesus will never forsake us because he was forsaken for us so that we would be embraced by God for eternity. That's the good news that Mark is proclaiming to us. Instead of forsaking us, here's the great glory of God's sovereignty in Jesus. He'll use those storms to sanctify us. He'll use the storms to strengthen our trust, our trust in who he is and what he's done to make us his own forever. It's the good news about Jesus walking on the water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious news and revelation that we find of Jesus in Mark chapter 6. We thank you for the way you have provided for us through the atonement and how you've promised to be with us even through the storms of life. Because Jesus sympathizes with us. He understands our needs. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you for 
the life of holiness that you lived on our behalf. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection that you provided for us through your resurrection. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just implant those those truths upon our heart and our mind as we go out into the world and have to face the storms of life. We can do it in hope because of these things. Not only are you sovereign, you're you're sovereign, you're all-powerful, you're transcendent, yet you are imminent to the person and work of Jesus. You're not a distant deity. You are a personal savior of sinners, a merciful and compassionate God. We thank you for that revelation. We thank you for the truth and the hope that is ours in Christ. I pray that in his name. Amen.